Well, good afternoon. Today, the topic that we'll be studying is salvation. And if you were here last week, David Farnham taught on the work of Christ, what Christ came to do. In short, Christ came to redeem mankind from his sinful and lost condition. Today, the primary purpose of the lesson is to study salvation. The question we're trying to answer is, how is the redeeming work of Christ applied to man? Well, I guess a short answer is God has decreed a plan of salvation, and he has revealed it to us in the Bible, his word. The Bible very clearly teaches us how he saves those who believe. And what we find when we study this is a very fascinating paradox. When we study the Bible regarding salvation, first and foremost, it is clear that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Now, many believe in the sovereignty of God in a general way, but not when speaking of salvation. But God's sovereignty does extend into the realm of salvation, and the Bible is crystal clear about this. God is the one who calls us to salvation. God draws us to himself. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. It's God that grants repentance, God that gives one the faith to believe, and it is God that justifies the believer. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, and it is God that promises to glorify us. From beginning to end, the work of salvation is God. The Bible teaches that God is involved in all of those steps in carrying out his plan of salvation. He initiates it, implements it, and culminates his plan. Yet, at the same time, man is held responsible for his unbelief. He is held responsible for not obeying the gospel. And the reason the Bible gives for his um, unsaved condition remaining in that state is that he was not willing to come to Christ. Now, how can both of these things be true? Well, they are, because the Bible teaches both of these things. We're going to look at both sides of the coin today. We're going to look at God's sovereignty in salvation, and then we'll look at man's responsibility in salvation. And my hope really is that by the end of our time together, that we would all have a profoundly greater attitude of humility and gratefulness for what God has done for us. And that should result in praise and glory of his name. So let's begin by looking at God's sovereignty in salvation. What we mean by this is that salvation is solely an act of God. Now, I know many people struggle with this truth because it removes from man any contribution to their salvation. And I think if you struggle with this, two things will help you um, to understand this as we begin. One is understanding God's divine perspective. When we look at God's sovereignty and salvation, what we have to understand is that the Bible is giving us a glimpse into the mind of God. From his infinitely wise and sovereign mind, salvation is his plan, which he initiates and he culminates. 
The second thing you have to understand is man's depravity. And all you need to do is go back to the beginning of David Farnham's teaching last week, which he did such an amazing job at. He covered the doctrine of the depravity of man. In short, what this means is that man has no capacity to save himself. And I want to briefly review some of the points David made last week in covering the depravity of man. He took us to Romans chapter 3, 10, verses 10 to 12, and I'll read those again. It says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. David said that man was guilty of these six things, and he put them into his own words. Man is unrighteous. He is ignorant, disregarding, God-rejecting, useless, and good for nothing. <laughs> That's an excellent biblical description of the depraved condition of man. Man has what we call a fallen nature. And man's fallen nature means several things. One, it means that he is alienated from God. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 to 22 says this, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. All human beings are alienated or separated from God. And they are enemies of God. Both of those things are described here. Alienated, alienated means you have no ability to reconcile with God because he has alienated you. He has separated himself from you. But also... You're enemies of God, which means we have no desire to reconcile with God. It's a double whammy here. Our fallen nature condemns us. And that's why Paul, when he speaks to, Col to Colossian believers, he says, This was your condition, yet now he has reconciled. He has reconciled. We couldn't reconcile. God had to do the reconciling. Mankind's fallen nature also means that he is spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it says this, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, there's probably not a more complete description of man's helpless state. In this passage, we see that he is dead in trespasses and sins. But he lives outwardly, how? According to the world and under the power of Satan. He is a, a son of disobedience. He lets the flesh control his conduct and his mind, and he is a child of wrath. That's a pretty hopeless state. But then notice these two great words, but God. Okay? But God. It's because of his mercy Paul says he is rich in mercy. It's because of his great love, the love with which he loved us. He made us alive by his grace 
we are saved. Now, where is in there any human effort? It's all God. And as a result of our fallen nature, man is helpless to save himself. That's what we see there. In Romans 5, 6, Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. <clears throat> when we properly understand the depravity of man and his absolutely helpless state, then, then God's sovereignty over salvation becomes a lot more clear and easy to understand. Each of these verses states man's helpless state and what God did to bring him out of that state, not what man did. Colossians said he has reconciled. He has reconciled. Ephesians stated that he made us alive together with Christ. And Romans stated that when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Man can't, man won't seek out God. God must seek out man. It must begin with God, otherwise man is doomed. So, understanding man's helpless state, let's look at what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and salvation. We're going to begin with Romans 8, 29 to 30. Romans 8, 29 to 30 says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now there is a phrase repeated four times in these two verses. He also. This passage stresses God's sovereignty in salvation with five links in a chain connected by the phrase he also. The five links are foreknew, he also predestined, he also called, he also justified, he also glorified. That is an unbreakable chain. Each term is connected to the other by the he also phrase, meaning this, what God begins, he brings to completion. And doesn't the Bible teach that? Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The key to understanding God's sovereignty and salvation is to understand that it begins with God. And the first two links in the chain make this clear. We'll look at all five links, but we're going to spend the majority of the time looking at these first two. The first is, Foreknew. Now it says Romans 8, 29, 30 says, for whom he foreknew. Now that word foreknew is prognosco. And it's a very simple word, pro, before, gnosko, to know. To know before really is the simplest understanding of the meaning. But it is not used of God's omniscience of knowing facts or events. It's, it's true that, that God knows everything and he certainly knows what will happen in our lives. Nothing that ever happens to us, or in our world for that matter, ever takes God by surprise. He foreknows those things, but that's not how this word is actually used in Scripture. Foreknew goes deeper. It is an intimate knowledge over the very details of our lives. It is not simply knowing what will happen, but planning it. Take a look at the word foreknowledge in a couple of verses. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
It says this, verses 1 to 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now here, foreknowledge is clearly used of salvation. The dispersed pilgrims of God, these are, these are believers all over the, the regions, are his elect, which means picked out, chosen by God. Now, how are they picked out by God? According to his foreknowledge. God knew them. Now, many try to explain foreknowledge as God looking down the corridor of time and seeing who would believe in Christ and who would not. And if a person comes to saving faith in Christ, well, then he predestines them to be saved based upon his foreknowledge of their faith. And if he sees someone who does not come to saving faith in Christ, well, then he does not predestine them to salvation. Well, this is not the correct understanding of God's foreknowledge, and for several reasons. One, this text that we're looking at does not say anything about God foreknowing or foreseeing that certain people would believe. That's something that people insert into the text. In fact, that idea that God looks into the future and he predestines people to salvation based upon their decision is not mentioned in any text of Scripture. Nowhere. Secondly, God did not look into the future and grant salvation based upon man's decision to believe because that would violate the doctrine of the depravity of man, which we just covered. Man is spiritually dead. He has no capacity to seek God, nor would he if he did. If God simply looked through the corridor of time and saw who would believe, then salvation really begins with man and not God. Consider the dry, dry bones of Ezekiel 37. You know, God is showing Ezekiel this vision of these, this desert with all these dry bones. And, and this is what it says in verses 3 to 5. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Now the dry bones here in this passage represent the spiritually dead state of Israel. Obviously, they weren't physically dead, but this is a spiritual death that he's talking about. And only God can bring the spiritually dead to life. Now, I come from a desert. I used to roam the deserts all the time just to explore, and I was always fascinated by all the dead animal bones that I would come across. And never did I once look at a bone and go, hey, you know, someday this bone might be able to live. It's absolutely ridiculous to think a bone could live. God does not go to bones and say, okay, look, Christ has died for your sins. Place your faith in him. They're dead. They're just bones, which is why he tells Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, could these bones live? Is there any ability in these bones to live? And that's why Ezekiel puts it in the place of God. God, only you know. You're the only one that can bring the spiritually dead to life. Now, this text does not refer to God foreknowing certain facts about people either, the one that we're looking at, Romans 8, okay? He doesn't say that God knew facts about people. He simply says, those who he foreknew. 
It's a personal relational knowledge that God is speaking of, not facts about people, not the fact that they placed a saving faith in Christ at some point in the future. He foreknew them. It's a point Paul makes in salvation when he speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8.3. He says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now, that is absolutely true. We can't love God. Why? You all know this answer. Because he first loved us. The love that we have for him is the love which he has poured out into our hearts. So Paul simply says, if you love God, that's because you've been known by him. He knew you first. God's foreknowledge involves his thinking of certain people in a saving relationship to him. He knows them. Paul speaks the same way uh, to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 8 to 9. He says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, I love it. I love Paul. Yeah, Paul actually corrects himself. You know, you didn't know God because you served um, false gods. But now, now, now that you know God and he corrects himself, or actually rather, you are known by him. <laughs> someone For someone to know God actually means they are known by God. You know, if foreknowledge simply meant that God knows about things, about events, about facts, about things that will happen, then I think you really have a problem with Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Because here Peter is preaching after Pentecost, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, now here, Jesus' crucifixion is described as being by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, let me ask you, did God simply look through time and see that Christ would die? That that, that event would happen? Or was that according to his predetermined, predetermined will? In fact, this verse goes further. It actually helps us quite a bit. It highlights for us how to understand such a lofty concept as the one which we're discussing. Like many of the great doctrines of Scripture, God's sovereignty and salvation is coupled with man's responsibility to exercise faith. Notice, it's Christ who was delivered according to God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. Okay, all that, the crucifixion of Christ according to God's plan. But also, it was according to the lawless hands of sinners. Christ was crucified and put to death by them. Both are true. Both are true. What we're trying to understand when we're studying this is which one came first. God's predetermined plan came first. In 1 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, it says this, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word foreordained here is actually our word foreknew in Romans 8, 29, prognosco, okay? Christ was foreknown, foreordained before the foundation of the world. Meaning, God's plan of redemption through his son, Jesus, was not a reaction to something that happened in time. Namely, the coming of sin into the world through the fall of man. God did not see that and go, oh boy, I better come up with a plan. 
because it was before the foundation of the world, before the Garden of Eden. There was no man, there was no garden. Okay, that's what he's trying to say here. He only came in the flesh, Jesus was manifest in these last days for you. So God's foreknowledge here refers to his sovereign plan of salvation. Salvation begins with God's foreknowledge. His intimate knowledge of not simply facts about you or a me, but knowing us, those whom he knows as a loving father, he then predestines for salvation. And the unbreakable chain continues. Romans 8, 29 again, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, predestined is prorizo, and it means to decide or appoint beforehand. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now here, we get a double dose of God's sovereignty and salvation. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We're chosen. We're picked out to be what? To be holy and without blame before him. Now that's a long way away from our spiritually dead state. God chooses us to be holy. We can't be made holy. He has to make us holy. He also predestined us to adoption as sons. Because God foreknew us in a personal and an intimate way, he chose us to be his sons. Now listen, there are only two ways that you come into a family. You are either born into it or you're adopted into it. See, we, we don't contribute anything uh, uh, to our coming into a family in either case. We're adopted. Here, though, we learn something more, the purpose of God's sovereignty and salvation. What's the purpose behind it all? We are predestined, how? According to the good pleasure of his will. He, he willed it. It's not according to my choice of him, but according to his will. And why? Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's so that he will receive praise and glory because of the grace that he has shown us. There's nothing that we contribute. God, God's grace is, is undeserved fav, favor. God, God doesn't show us grace based on merit. Probably Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is, is one of the most well-known verses that cover, covers this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why? Why can't we boast? It's not of works. Now, listen, many people read this verse, and despite it being really clear that it's not of ourselves, they still claim from this verse that we contribute faith. Well, faith here is also a gift. Faith is something given to you and I. A dead bone can't have faith. A spiritually dead person can't have faith. Faith, we're told, is obtained. We don't have any capacity to exercise faith as spiritually dead, alienated enemies of God. That's why in 2 Peter 1.1, we're told this, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. How, How do you get faith? It's through the righteousness of Christ. 
is Paul, who says that Jesus grants us belief or faith. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We're granted faith and we're granted suffering based on our faith. You see, we are saved not according to any works at all, including faith. In fact, one commentator helps describe faith as this, as breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. Now, I like that. It's something that comes to us from God. We're spiritually dead. We cannot even make a decision of faith unless God gives us life to act, to breathe the breath. In 2 Timothy 1.9, I think it gives us a rock-solid, ironclad description of how we are saved. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, and get this, before time began. <laughs> okay, again, he saved us not according to our works, we get that, but he predestined us when? according to his own purpose and grace before time began. How could you have chosen God before there was time? How could you have exercised faith before there was time? You couldn't have. God had to choose you. Now, this all should really be boggling your mind right now. <laughs> this is intense stuff. A few verses later in Ephesians 1.11, we find another reason that he does this. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestination is according to his purpose and will, his plan, his foreknowledge. In other words, it all begins with him. But there is another link in the unbreakable chain of salvation, and that is calling. Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So if he foreknew you, he also predestined you. If he predestined you, he also called you. Now, this is the first time that God's sovereignty and salvation enters the sphere of man. It is in the calling, the calling. God offers an open call or invitation to salvation. Probably John 3.16 is the most oft-quoted verses in regarding this, right? Whoever God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the, the open call. Romans 10.13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I am going to come back to this in a moment. I want to expand our thoughts on calling. But for the time being, I just want to continue in the chain link that we're doing and cover the others, and we'll come back to calling. Romans 8.30, it says, Whom he called, these he also justified. Okay? Those who are called also are justified. Justified is that legal courtroom term. We're declared not guilty. How are you declared not guilty? Because of the, of the, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's because of the work of Christ. Not, again, not because of any work you do. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a substitutionary atonement. Christ took on our sin on the cross. We took on his righteousness. God looks upon the cross and sees our sin. He looks upon us and sees his son. 
That's amazing. We're justified. If you're called, he also justifies you, declares you not guilty of any sin. He no longer sees sin in you. And if that is true, well, that brings us to the last link in the chain, whom he justified, these he also glorified. God brings us all the way to the end, our glorification and entrance into glory. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, listen, these are the broad, broad steps of salvation, but God is involved in many of the steps, the small steps that are in between. God's foreknowledge and predestination of believers takes place outside of time before the foundation of the world. The smaller steps take place within time and within the sphere of man. And it begins with God's calling. Going back to that word again, calling, okay? God calls on all mankind to believe in Jesus for salvation. Now, how does he do that? It's through two things. One is through the preaching of the gospel or reading of his word, okay? Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is a general call that goes out to all because the gospel is available to all. God's word is available to all. Remember, even Jesus, when he was um, sharing parables, he often ended his teaching by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? There, wasn't, there weren't people out there with no ears. He was talking about spiritual ears. Spiritual ears. He gave the message to all, but only those who had ears to hear would hear. That's the proper way to understand the call. While the general call goes out to all, some do not respond to it because they do not have spiritual ears. Now, why? Why is that so? Well, the Bible tells us why. In fact, David mentioned this verse last week in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God the Father draws sinners to Christ. Now, Jesus told a parable that greatly demonstrates this uh, truth. It's the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. A king has a son that's going to be married, and so he invites um, all the wedding guests. Hey, it's time for the wedding. Uh, come uh, to the wedding. Come to the feast. And he sends servants out to issue the invitation. Well, these people reject the, the invitation. Many say, I don't want to come. But they also kill the servants who are delivering the message. And so the king is upset. He goes out and destroys them. And he says, what shall I do? Well, I'll send servants to invite others. And he says, go into the byways. Go, go everywhere. Invite everyone to the wedding. And we're told that the servants go out and they invite, note it, both good and bad. Both good and bad. The general call goes out to all. And all are invited. And everyone comes in to the wedding. Enter the king. The king comes to the wedding, the day of the wedding now. And notice what he says in verse 11. I'll pick up the parable here. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You see, the calling here is the general call to repentance and faith that comes to all through the gospel. Many hear the gospel, but not all respond to it. Those who respond are said to be chosen. 
the invited man to the wedding. Now, he was called, but he rejected the king's wedding garment, seeking to come to the wedding in his own clothes. He didn't put on the wedding garment the king offered. The wedding clothes represent the covering of righteousness that only is provided by the king. Isaiah, this, is, this is Old Testament stuff. Isaiah 61.10 um, states this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul. Uh, sorry, greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. See this? So the, this is Old Testament imagery coming into this parable. The rest of the guests, they were in proper clothes. They had responded to the calling in the proper way. Now, how is that possible? Well, ask yourself, why do sinners come to Christ? I mean, why do they come? They should be properly convicted of their sin through the gospel. But who convicts them? Their own dead heart that doesn't seek God? No, it's the Holy Spirit. Conviction of sin comes about by the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 8 to 9. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. See, men do not believe because they lack conviction of sin. Conviction must come first. Dead men can't come to Christ. They need to be drawn to him through divine conviction. And conviction leads to repentance. Now, repentance is a deliberate turning from sin. That's what repentance is. You turn from sin and turn to go in another direction. But Scripture tells us that it is also God who is credited with granting repentance. Peter was explaining to the other apostles about how God was saving Gentiles. And this is what they say in Acts 11.18. When they had heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. The apostles recognized that it was God who was bringing them to repentance. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but he must, must be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, and if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. It is God who grants repentance. Repentance is equated with knowing the truth. Those that know the truth are said to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil in verse 26. And and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Who brings us out of the snare of the devil? What does, I'm sorry. Well, repentance, and who grants it? God. And men who repent of their sin then must place faith in Christ. While repentance is a turning from sin, faith is turning to Christ. Now, look how far down the line faith is way down the line. That's why scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. It comes way after all of these things. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And we looked at this verse earlier. Some argue that faith should not be considered a work. Well, okay, if it's according to faith, then somewhere we should see that stated in scripture somewhere. But you know what? We never do. We never do. Even here, Paul could have said, but according to the faith 
but he didn't. He said, according to his own purpose and grace. Faith leads to the next chain in the link. That is justified. It's through faith that we are justified. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification comes to us by faith. And then justification then brings another work of God into our lives. It's regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Some call it the new birth, being born again. And it is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to unbelievers. Consider John 1, 12, okay? It says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now you look at that verse and you say, okay, who were those people who believed in him and received him? Well, the very next verse tells us, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, uh, the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. <laughs> so the will of man cannot bring about this new birth. It's the will of God. So how are we regenerated? Titus 3.5 says this, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Again, here, um, specifically tells us that it's not of works. Since God does all of these things that we're looking at, he certainly will bring it to completion with our glorification. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So, what part then does man play in all of this? Well, let's look at the other side of the coin now. Let's look at man's responsibility in salvation. While God is truly sovereign over every aspect of salvation, man is still held responsible for sin and rejection of Christ. Now, this is the paradox that I mentioned earlier. There are, uh, these are the two truths that create tension. Uh, there are many truths like this in, in Scripture, particularly in, um, in dealing with our, our walk, our sanctification. I could ask you, who lives your Christian life? Well, how would you answer that question? Would you say, well, I do. Are you completely sure about that? Or would you say, the Holy Spirit does. Well, are you completely sure about that? You see, both are true. You know, that's why Paul says that the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ who lives in me. Yet I also live. I make decisions. I, I, I walk. But we're told to walk by the Spirit, aren't we? So this is a paradox as well that we're coming to here in salvation. We saw that God offers an open call to salvation, but man is held responsible for his unbelief. In John 3.18, it says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're held responsible for their unbelief. Man is also held responsible for not obeying the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 says the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because they are held responsible for their unbelief, for their disobedience to the gospel, ultimately they're not saved because they are unwilling to come to Christ. John 5 says in verses 39 to 40, 
You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You know, another great example, I think, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility seen side by side, not necessarily in salvation, but just seeing those two things side by side is in the example of, of Judas. In Luke 22, 22, it says this, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now here we see it's been determined that the Son of Man will be betrayed, that he goes by that betrayal. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. God determined that Judas would betray Christ Jesus, but yet it's Judas that's going to be held responsible for his actions. It's amazing. So when we look at salvation, what is man's part in all of this? It's simply this. If I can boil it down to this, it is to respond to the calling of God. Remember, the calling of God comes by two ways. It's the preaching of the gospel or the, the reading of his word and the conviction of sin through the Holy Spirit. Remember, Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. When people hear the law, they hear the word, they gain knowledge of sin, and they then must call upon the name of the Lord to save them. Romans 10, 11 to 13 says this, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, there's an excellent Old Testament example of this. It's recorded in Numbers 21. You might remember this, but uh, uh, the children of Israel disobey God again. They complain, and so he sends these serpents into the, their midst to bite them. And when they're bit, they, they, they die, and so they're crying out to the Lord. They're repenting before him, and so God tells Moses to make a, a bronze image of a serpent and put it up on a pole. He tells them to lift the pole, and that whoever looks upon the pole after they're bitten, they'll be saved. Now, this is an illustration of conversion. Obviously, instead of looking at a, a, a snake on a pole, look to Christ on a cross. When we're convicted of our sin and we respond to the call of God to come to him for salvation, we must look to Christ. Um, you know, there's a great example of this as well in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's a sermon to uh, the crowds there in Jerusalem, he says, this in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here they demonstrated what is called a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. It must be godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. And 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. See, repentance leads to salvation. This is all from man's perspective. We must respond to the calling. Now, when we look at these two things side by side, God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility, our tendency is to want to reject one of the two because they seem to be mutually exclusive to our, our finite minds. However, in the infinite mind of God, his choosing us for our salvation is perfectly consistent with his promise that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
And why do we find this hard to believe? I think two things I've, I've found in, in my time in, in ministry. One, it offends our sense of justice, our sense of right and wrong. It doesn't uh, sound fair if God predetermines those for salvation. But remember one thing, uh, don't ask for fair because fair is down there. None of us deserve grace. None of us deserve, deserve mercy. But also remember that this is from the sovereign mind of God, from God's infinitely sovereign perspective of salvation. But the second, and the second thing that makes us hard for people to believe this is that churches don't teach the whole counsel of God. If all they preach week in and week out is the gospel, then this stuff is never learned. Um, they just learn the gospel. Well, that makes sense because this is not part of the gospel. You, you don't use these things in the gospel. You don't go to them, well, I hope God predetermined uh, it foreknew you. I hope, you know, I hope he predestined you because otherwise you're, you're up a creek. Uh, no, that's not part of the gospel. And I saw this um, uh, exemplified so clearly when I first went to Bible college. I went to theology class and they first started teaching this. There were grown men standing up in the room, screaming at the professor, saying, you are rocking my faith. I've never heard this. What are you talking? God chooses. All they ever heard was the gospel. They, they had never heard anything more, which shows their ignorance. They had never studied scripture. God's sovereignty and salvation is not part of the gospel. It's not necessary to be saved. So then why should we study it? What does it provide? Well, it provides a lot, but for the sake of time, let me just give you a couple things. One is greater incentive to holy living. It does. Think of Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When you consider the fact that God chose you, first of all, you should be extremely humbled, extremely grateful. You did nothing to deserve this. And so the question always comes, well, then why? Why? I hear this all. Well, then why did he choose me? Here is the answer, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He just wants us to be holy, to, to live holy lives. Alistair Begg put it beautifully. He says, the grace of God does not relieve me of my responsibility to be obedient. The grace of God makes possible my obedience. God gives you grace so that you might live a holy life before him. I think a second thing understanding these things does is it gives us absolute assurance of salvation. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who just question their salvation, question their faith. But listen, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. If he foreknew you, he also predestined, he also called, he also justified, and don't forget that last, he also, he also glorified. And just in case you think that I'm using this scripture, Romans 8, 29 to 30, out of uh, context uh, here, the whole passage is about salvation, but let me just show you where he goes beyond this. Even this kind of stuff even boggles the mind of Paul. In verse 31, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.